says that stigma breeds shame. Stigma breeds silence. We'll find out why in just a moment. Hello, everyone. My name is Pamela Brewer, welcoming you to this edition of Mind Talk. Today's guest, Dr. Stephen P. Hinshaw, is a professor of psychology at UC Berkeley and a professor of psychiatry at UC San Francisco. Dr. Hinshaw is very busy. He's the author of 12 books, and his research in clinical and developmental psychology have netted him several awards. He has been well covered by the major publications of our time, so I am indeed very pleased to have him here with us at Mind Talk. Dr. Hinshaw, welcome. Well, I'm delighted to be on, and thanks so much. Now, Dr. Hinshaw, you begin your story, which you have entitled Another Kind of Madness which has been noted as a masterpiece as well uh, by some of your reviewers, uh, Glenn Close in particular, who I think is a name that many people will recognize. But you took your title from someone who you have uh, noted as having created a masterpiece. And I'm wondering if you would share the quote for the audience that you have in your book. Let me read from the book's preface. The inspiration for this book's title comes from a quote from James Baldwin in one of his masterpieces, Giovanni's Room. Quote, people who remember court madness through pain, the pain of the perpetually recurring death of their innocence. People who forget court another kind of madness, the madness of the denial of pain, and the hatred of innocence. And the world is mostly divided between madmen who remember and madmen who forget. So that's the quote. It's it's a powerful quote. And you know, one of the things that's, thank you for sharing that with us, uh, Dr. Hinshaw, one of the things that strikes me um, just right off the bat is that many lay people have the notion that if you are an accomplished clinician, that your life has just sort of, you know, been created out of a golden bubble and you have gone along swimmingly and there has been no crisis in your life. Uh, and, and just the fact that you have been willing to share your own personal story, I think, is powerful in and of itself. You begin Another Kind of Madness, uh, which is subtitled A Journey Through the Stigma and Hope of Mental Illness, talking about your, your childhood and talking about your interactions um, with your dad. Can you tell us uh, about a Sunday dinner uh, that you describe in some detail that was about to happen at a restaurant that was to be a traditional family meal? And then that particular Sunday, it seemed like everything fell apart very quickly. So here we were in Columbus, Ohio. My dad was a philosopher, professor of philosophy at OSU, uh, very promising. He had been, while a graduate student at Princeton, had a weekly tutorial with Bertrand Russell on sabbatical over from England later in his graduate career. 
got to know Albert Einstein across the street at the Institute for Advanced Study and wrote a chapter on Einstein's social and moral philosophy, became a professor at OSU, met my mother, grad student in history. They fell in love. We went to OSU football games. Dad had been on the faculty for a few years, and we had 50-yard line seats. My little sister and I uh, had the benefits of a very warm academic family in the Midwest. What could have been better? Well, sometimes mysteries happened. So on this particular Sunday after church, we drove across town, across Columbus, to my grandmother's, my mother's mother's home. And as we would do every month or so, we headed out to the Willard with its tempting mashed potatoes and fried chicken dinners. And always look forward to those Sunday afternoons. But on this particular Sunday, I was probably in first grade. My sister was about to enter kindergarten. And just driving across town, this is before you could take the freeway and save 15 minutes, going through downtown Columbus by the state capitol, try to describe the scene as vividly as I can, Dad seems elevated in the driver's seat of our station wagon by a couple of feet as though he were on some kind of invisible perch. He seemed superior. He seemed to know everything. And the snarl on his face and the edge in his voice, I couldn't remember seeing or hearing Dad quite like that. We got out to the restaurant, and I was clutching the (laughs) car seat with my knuckles, wondering maybe this would pass. Maybe Dad's in a bad mood. And we got out to the Willard, but we got there a little bit late, and there was a huge line. I've never been the world's most patient individual, and it was getting hot on a spring day, and I was itchy in my sweater, and I couldn't stand to wait, and I was getting angry, and then Dad lost it, shooed my sister and me over to the car. Grandmother and Mom cowered behind, and almost as though he were awaiting something horrible happening. He drove us back to grandmother's house and then unloaded on her in the kitchen. If you hadn't spoiled the children so badly when they would spend the night out here, Stephen would have never acted like this. And mom burst into tears, and I thought, what has happened? My dad's a philosopher. I knew that from the time I was very little. He's calm and measured. What, of course, I didn't know at the time is that he was fast escalating into an episode of mania. Wasn't sleeping, wake up early, write incomprehensible scrawls on his legal pads, thought he'd solve the world's and the universe's philosophical problems. He'd started at age 16 out in Southern California with his first episode like this, came coming to the belief that If he just lifted his arms up, they'd become wings and he could fly. This was back in the mid-30s. He thought that he was the savior of Earth placed on the planet to stop the growing fascist threat, to stop Hitler and Mussolini. And in the middle of the night in Pasadena, wandering the streets, how would he enact his plan? Came upon the idea that if he just made this magnificent flight, the world's leaders would notice and the free world would stop the fascists and climbed up the trellis before dawn and 
made his first flight. Of course, it was a second and a half from the roof of the home to the ground below, survived somehow this very psychotic half-suicide attempt, half-attempting to save the world, and was in a back ward of a state mental hospital in Southern California for six months, essentially given up for dead. So dad's life was marked by brilliance. There were six boys in the family, and they were all quite accomplished, or, in the vernacular, madness. Another kind of madness, quoting from Baldwin again, isn't the bipolar disorder he had, misdiagnosed as schizophrenia for 40 years until I diagnosed it correctly. The madness was when he got home at age 16, now 17, from the hospital, the family never talked about it because they didn't know what had happened. Dad's later episodes, and there were many of them, when he was a professor, my sister and I were young, he asked his doctor, what do I tell my children about my hospitalizations and my supposed schizophrenia? And the lead doctor said, if your children ever learn the reason for your disappearances, they'll be permanently destroyed. You and your wife are forbidden from ever discussing it. Extraordinary. So the madness is the shame and the silence. What do kids do when they know something's going wrong at home but nobody's talking about it? They tend to blame themselves. Absolutely. This this internalization. And so the depressions I've had in my life, I'm sure, are partly related to the bipolar genes, depression genes that dad transmitted, but also to the shame and silence. It wasn't until I was 18, home from back east, my first spring break from college, dad pulled me in a study and said, son, perhaps you should learn something of my life. I think he reasoned that I wasn't a child anymore, so he wasn't disobeying the doctor's orders. One of the things that comes immediately to mind is, of, of course, you know, there, there are so many myths about mental illness, even today as yeah. we speak. And one of them is that if you have a mental illness label, it means that you are fully and completely incapacitated, that you cannot do anything, that your mind doesn't function really at all. And so to hear you talk about your father, who was extremely well accomplished, who was intellectually gifted, who was doing wonderful things with his career, uh, Russell, Einstein, you know, it almost doesn't get a whole lot better than that or and a lot more impressive than that. It really sort of bursts a bubble, I think an important bubble, in the eyes of so many people who see mental illness so incorrectly. Mental illness still stereotypically in the folklore, in too much of the media, is it's permanent, it's irreversible, you're completely either violent or incompetent. People with serious mental illness are five times more likely to be victimized by violence than other people, except in rare cases, no more likely to commit violence, except 
What's the public face of mental illness too much? The school shooters, the disgruntled men who look deranged. And Now, if you have a psychotic illness and you believe people are out to control you, what we call a delusion of control, an extreme paranoid delusion, you may preemptively become violent. But with treatment, those symptoms go away. The ultimate paradox to me of the shame and silence and stigma is that even though we don't have cures yet, the science is progressing, but we don't have cures yet, if you go to your doctor, psychiatrist, psychologist, social worker, for treatment for moderate to severe mental illness, whether through medication, if you have a severe form, most often through individual or group or family therapy, there's many evidence-based forms of such, Recovery is a distinct possibility. The average effect on symptoms and impairments of getting good mental health treatments is bigger, typically, than the average treatment size, <laughs> effect size you'll get from seeing your doctor for a physical illness you may have. The myth of permanence and incompetence is simply wrong. Most people with mental illness can recover. They can lead fully productive lives if only they can get access to treatment. So, Here's a statistic. Our colleague Ron Kessler, the great epidemiologist at Harvard School of Public Health, has done national surveys. And what's the average length of time now, 21st century, for people with mental illnesses between the time they recognize, you know, maybe these symptoms are, maybe things aren't going well, I should get this evaluated, and getting a formal assessment and treatment. The mean, the average is 10 years. Wow. For something like OCD, it's 17 years. These are crucial years, often in your teens or Absolutely. early 20s, when early detection and treatment could make a big difference. But the shame and sometimes ignorance and stigma and lack of parity for mental health care deprive people of the treatments they need, so the vicious cycle continues. There's another piece that you mentioned, uh, and, and I want to come back to what you just said in terms of getting proper treatment, uh, but you also talked about your dad taking sort of a, a, a attempting to take flight off the top of yeah. the building. And, you know, for the, the clinicians uh, who, who listen to the program, I, I wanted you to talk more about this, the, the importance of really exploring behaviors and not assuming that a particular behavior is a particular evidence of a particular diagnosis without getting more information. Anyone sort of fresh out of school might say he took a flying leap off a building. He was trying to kill himself. But in fact, as you described it, he wasn't trying to kill himself. He was having a psychotic episode and he was trying to save the world. Huge difference. He was trying. He, he was clearly delusional. So back in the day, most of the last century, if you had hallucinations, hearing voices, etc., having very strong fixed beliefs, delusions, it was automatically assumed you had schizophrenia. Of course, those are symptoms of schizophrenia. But if you have a severe enough manic episode or even a severe enough depression, those kinds of psychotic features and thinking and beliefs will come into play. So the behavior was... He climbed up the trellis of the family home in Pasadena. The sun was just coming up. He thought the world's leaders could only witness his flight once the sun was up, forgetting different time zones around the world. And again, objectively, you'd say suicide attempt. 
in fact, he thought he was that far gone in his manic delusional state that he was actually saving the free world. And so, number one, getting behind, just as you put it, the behavior to its intent and what it means for the person is is crucial. Number two, if the doctors had known back then that this was part of a bipolar, what used to be called manic depressive illness, and that it's in fact the case that many people who escalate fast into mania, you don't just get happy, you don't just get grandiose, you start to get irritable, you start to believe that you're the savior of the planet. And it looks like schizophrenia at the time, but what we now know is mood-stabilizing medications that are pretty particular for bipolar disorder can stop those cycles in their tracks often, and often it takes a lot of support for a person to stay on medication, and when the person's out of that cycle, cognitive behavior therapy, group support, family therapy can reinforce for everybody the need to recognize you've got this form of mental illness, you need to stay in, in treatment. When we do that, we, we don't just treat the symptoms, we treat the whole person and the family and the groups that the person lives in. This is the essence. Now, other part of my career is working with kids with learning and attention problems, ADHD in particular. I'm worried that many kids are getting still underdiagnosed, but I'm also worried that kids are getting overdiagnosed, partly because too many diagnoses, quote-unquote, are made in a 10- to 15-minute office visit with a pediatrician who doesn't have specialist training, who doesn't use the evidence-based teacher and home rating skills, doesn't get a thorough history. Diagnosis is serious business. We've got to reimburse careful diagnosis so that we don't under or overdiagnose and we give the right treatments. So this all gets back to your very astute question and point about you've got to sometimes get beneath the surface to figure out what what the real meaning of symptoms are. Again, there's so much fear and stigma, as we have been saying repeatedly, around the issue of mental illness. I think about the person who... Uh, knows that they have a parent who has been diagnosed with fill-in-the-blanks. And now they're afraid that either they, too, will have whatever their parent has. They don't want to tell someone they're in a relationship with for fear that any children they may have will have fill-in-the-blanks. What do we do with all of this? Oh, boy. (laughs) Let me count the ways. (laughs) (laughs) It's such a good question. I I said a few moments ago that you didn't put cancer in the obituary of your relative, not that many decades ago in our country, and now it's a cause. HIV, AIDS, in the early days of the epidemic, you'd never admit it. It was shameful. You brought it upon yourself through your sexual orientation or drug use or getting the wrong blood supply if you had hemophilia. And cancer, we don't have full cures yet, but we can treat it better and earlier. HIV, we can have long lifespans for people with early detection and and the right treatments. We can do the same for mental health conditions now, but people 
don't get access to care, again, insurance is part of the issue, shame and embarrassment is part of the issue, lack of providers out there with knowledge of evidence-based treatments. I think stigma is huge for conditions that are still, still ensnared in mystery. We don't know much about mental illness. Maybe it's evil spirits. Maybe it's uh, the curse of the, the father visited upon the son. Once we demystify and say, these are illnesses, they're brain illnesses, other factors, again, like child-rearing and maltreatment in particular can add to the mix, but they're not the total cause. Let's be matter-of-fact. If you treat, you can get people to recover from symptoms and have far better lives the way if you treat cancer, the way if you treat HIV. In some ways, we're still back in the dark ages of the biblical descriptions of mental illness. If you want good descriptions of mental illness, go to the Bible or Quran. I mean, this is, people started recording human history. They've recorded sometimes these mysterious symptoms. They're less mysterious every decade as we know more of the brain science and we know more of the environmental triggers. We just have to, and I mean, it sounds very simple, not take it in terms of having to keep silent. Once dad disobeyed the doctor's orders and talked to me, I turned my life around, got on the track of getting into the field of mental health and fighting stigma myself. If we can just put words to it, and if we can say these are treatable conditions, yeah, sometimes the symptoms are hard. Mental illness can wreak havoc on families. Early autism post-traumatic stress disorder, bipolar illness. I could go through the whole category, catalog in the DSM of, of all the various diagnoses. But what they have in common is they're nameable and treatable. The brain science, the neuroscience, the psychological science is growing every year. But we still fund mental health research at lower levels than so-called physical health because we still don't think it deserves it. So getting it on the national agenda this is a local, it's a bottom-up grassroots movement. This is where the advocacy and self-help groups are so important. If we talk about it, just as with cancer, the policymakers can't ignore it any longer. Talk about the work of Glenn Close uh, with the Bring Change to Mind effort. I gave a lecture five springs ago at Berkeley to my big undergraduate class on developmental psychopathology we talk about genes and environments and temperament and attachment and autism and ADHD from A to Z, all the categories of child and adolescent mental illness. And so the lecture was done. I was walking across campus to the gym to play basketball, take a nice noon break. My phone rang. It was a 212 area code. I thought, who's calling me from New York? And I picked up, and the caller said that she was Glenn Close and wanted to talk to Stephen Henshaw. I thought, now, who, who's punking me, right? Who, right. This can't be true. And I said, uh, Ms. Close, and she said, yeah, this is Glenn. She said, I've read about your work in mental health and in anti-stigma efforts. I formed a group called Bring Change to Mind. We're going to fight stigma through public service announcements and advertisements, and we're going to work with young people the way you're doing in some of your work. And so we happened to both be in Los Angeles, so month later and spoke at mutual events and we're on some media together and so i'm proud to be a scientific advisor now to bring change to mind 
there's a big college program at Indiana University called U, the letter U bring change to mind, university bring change to mind, where four years of Indiana University students are working to fight stigma. You know, it's fascinating to hear about the work that you're doing in the high schools. That just sounds remarkable. Yeah. It's high school. I mean, what happens in social media, which we know can be problematic and wonderful. Kids, YouTube, getting to know other people online around the world who are struggling with the issues that they themselves or their family members or best friends are struggling with. There's instant communication. There's ways to forge links across generations and across people in different locations. And the clubs, you get a group of kids together that don't want their mom's or dad's depression or their own struggles with eating or anxiety to be buried anymore and they're finding ways to get school assemblies. They're finding ways to get speakers into their clubs and their schools to talk about these issues firsthand. This is the kind of grassroots young people community action that I'm convinced if it's like a snowball effect. If we can keep this going, our society won't in the future tolerate the shame and silence and stigma any longer. And the high school clubs, they're the LETS clubs, L-E-T-S? L-E-T-S, Let's Erase the Stigma. So we're in California now. We've got 100 clubs starting uh, in the fall of 2017 in the Bay Area and some clubs in Los Angeles. And as we can get the funds and we can get the networking to scale up, this would be a great movement to take national. Dr. Hinshaw, where can listeners find out more about the work you've done and what you're continuing to do? So I'll have a couple of answers. I'm an easy email target, if you will. My last name, Hinshaw, H-I-N, as in Nancy, S-H-A-W, at Berkeley, B-E-R-K-E-L-E-Y, three E's in Berkeley, dot E-D-U. My author website is www.stephenhinshawauthor.com, and that's Stephen with a P-H, S-T-E-P-H-E-N, H-I-N-S-H-A-W, author.com. And all of my books, including Another Kind of Madness, my most recent are there. Send me an email. Google me, Stephen Hinshaw with a P-H, and you'll see some of the talks and lectures I've given and some of the articles and, and books I've written. I'm eager to get people in touch with other people with existing self-help and support groups out there, local community networks, the answer to stigma is policy, mental health parity, taking away discriminatory legislation. You still can't vote or run for office or drive if you admit a mental illness in many states, but it's also changing the media images we have out there, and it's getting people to open up about their experiences. I think the bottom up, the grassroots opening up may be the most important of all. Dr. Hinshaw, I couldn't agree with you more. Thank you so much for spending time with us today and discussing this very, very important issue. Well, your questions were probing, and uh, I could talk for a few more hours, as you can tell, <laughs> but it's been a delight to be on. Thank you so much. My pleasure. And folks, thank you for joining us today on this edition of Mind Talk. Mind Talk is brought to you daily as an educational uh 
opportunity. It is not intended to replace any work that you may choose to do with a medical, mental health, or other professional. Mind Talk is produced by Jim Brown and 26 by 2 Communications. I would love to hear from you. Pamela at mindtalk.org is my email address. That's P-A-M-E-L-A at M-Y-N-D-T-A-L-K dot O-R-G. And folks, remember always, if it's unacceptable, it's unacceptable. You take care. Thank you.